Welcome to Truth and Focus. This is your host, Gordon Teeson. Today, we're going to listen to a message by Dr. Albert Moeller. Dr. Moeller recently spoke at the Bold Church Conference in Columbus. We were able to have some of our students from Nebraska Christian School go out and attend one of the days of the conference and hear Dr. Moeller. Dr. Moeller is the president of the Southern Seminary. He is somebody that regularly writes about, blogs about Christian worldview issues. So today's message will be joining Dr. Albert Moeller. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to be here? Uh, I am thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to this. First of all, there are all kinds of invitations I get that I can't take. There are some that I don't want to take. And uh, there are some that, uh, that I just have to take. But let me tell you, if, uh, if, if there's an invitation I have a hard time turning down, it's anything that calls itself bold. Somehow I'd be very hesitant to give myself to a couple of days you know, for a conference entitled Mediocrity. You know, just, or, or, you know, everybody names conferences with words now, you know, like elevate and surge and resurge. And I've never seen one, you know, the theme, hesitate. It just, it's just hard to, get, hard to get excited about that. But bold... That's right. Now, one of the problems we have is that there simply aren't enough bold preachers. Second problem we have is that there are preachers who are bold about the wrong things. And so just being bold is not good enough. It's like, it's like being courageous. There are people courageous for many wrong things. We need to be courageous for the right things, courageous for the truth, bold in the truth. And I'm, I'm honored to be here with pastors who do that. And I want you to know that I have a very special place in my heart for you, especially here in the heartland of the country. I told the service this morning as my wife and, and children were with me, then uh, Mary's father grew up here in Nebraska, a uh, Nebraska farmer, then two-time graduate of the University of Nebraska, and uh, he has infected a, the entire family with a love for Nebraska. He's now gone to be with the Lord. He's a wonderful Christian layman, one of the greatest encouragers I have had in my entire life, and I miss him never more than being here in his home state, sensing his pleasure in being the Nebraskan, and my, my wife's pleasure in being the daughter of a Nebraskan. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis, and as you're doing so, just keep that at the ready, because there are several things I want to lay out as we're together. This is, this is a preaching time, it's a teaching time, and I have a, I started to say I have a teenage son, that, that's not actually true anymore. I still have a son, he's just not a teenager anymore. He's now 20, but uh, I can remember one time when uh, he, he was about, I don't know, 12 or 13, and he asked, what is tonight? And I said, it, it's preaching. And he said, well, then w- what was this afternoon? I said, that was teaching. And he said, what's the difference? You sound the same. Uh, it takes a 13-year-old to tell you the truth. I said, well, well there, there is a difference, uh, son. And the difference comes down to this. Preaching always takes as its main task the exposition of a text, if it's authentic Christian preaching. But there's always teaching in preaching. There's just not always preaching in teaching. Now, if you're following that, that's pretty good for a Sunday night in a six o'clock session. What I'm going to do tonight is both, as is necessarily the case. And and I want to set forth a few things for us to think about, because this is a conference that isn't just about boldness in ministry. It's about boldness in ministry as directed to several of the most pressing challenges that we face. And so we're not here as if this is an ahistorical time without context. We're here because there are things we just know we have to talk about. And one of the best reasons for gathering pastors together is for us to think together. And I don't, I don't know, some of you in the room aren't, aren't pastors, but if, if not, then you care about pastors and you, 
you care deeply about the preaching of the church and you care deeply about the ministry of the church and every one of you in his or her own sphere has a responsibility with regard to these issues and the issues are pressing on us uh, with extreme velocity and uh, no small amount of controversy. And that causes a good many people, including a good many preachers, to uh, want to go into a hole and hide, which is the last thing faithfulness will allow us to do. But at times, boldness falters simply because we haven't thought deeply enough, carefully enough, biblically enough about some of these things so that when we stand up to speak, we actually have the confidence we know what we're talking about and we know how we ought to think about these things. I'm going to be talking about three different issues, and, and all of them are based upon or extensions of what I preached this morning from Romans chapter 1, from verse 16 to the end of that chapter, and I'll be going back to that as a touch point or touchstone from time to time. But the three big issues are, number one, boldness when it comes to the defense of marriage and family, and then secondly, boldness when it comes to the defense of life, and then lastly, boldness when it comes to the defense of the gospel. Those are three issues of the most urgent concern. And if you are wondering about that, all you have to do is realize that there is sufficient data to tell us that younger evangelicals, for instance, are, are more, they, they pay more social capital. I'm going to talk about that. They, they pay a higher price with their peers. They, are, they, they face a greater challenge to hold to the truth in those three areas than in any other. And that's not just a phenomenon of 2012. That's been building in this country and in this context in the Western world for a number of years now. But tonight we're going to be talking about the defense of marriage and the family. And one of the things we need to acknowledge as we're here together is that, that most of us know how to answer these questions in terms of yes or no, right or wrong. Uh, we, we are sufficiently trained in Scripture. We're sufficiently formed by the church and the gospel. We are sufficiently uh, aware of, uh, of, of these issues and, and how they have developed that, that we're ready to give an answer. The problem is, in many cases, it's just not enough of an answer. Because what we're facing right now is a society that is requiring us to justify every assertion we make. So something new for a lot of Christian pastors. Uh, for one thing, there was an era in which when a Christian preacher on the basis of the Word of God simply said something, it was, it was received as being the Word of God. And so people didn't come behind and say, well, defend that or justify that. Uh, but there's something else, and, and that is the fact that when the Christian preacher gets up to speak today... He is saying something that people often have never even heard before. It is shocking. In many ways, it's, uh, it's offensive. And that requires us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and of course also with, with meekness. But meekness matched with courage is exactly what we need. Meekness matched with courage is a courage that means we do not trust in ourselves. That would be the wrong kind of courage, but our boldness is in Christ. And in the knowledge that God has revealed himself to us so that we should know all that we need to know about these things. So the world right now is talking about the legalization of same-sex marriage. And it is one of the frontline controversies. And, and it will be so for the entirety of our lives. Even if same-sex marriage is somehow one way or the other, legislatively or judicially settled, don't count on that, but in terms of it being settled any more than in 1973, the Roe v. Wade decision settled abortion. It, it did not thanks be to God. But nonetheless, the issue is going to be here for the, for the rest of our lives. We're going to be facing this. And, and we are under a, a very strange set of cultural conditions. And one of them is that we are continually asked why this is all we talk about. Now, the reality is, of course, it isn't all we talk about. 
It's not even the main thing we talk about. But of necessity, we have to talk about it. I had a reporter for one of the nation's most uh, famous national newspapers called me and, and, and called me very early in the morning for a reporter. Reporters generally don't call at about 6.15 in the morning, but he called me about 6.15 in the morning. And I looked and it said, uh, I won't name the newspaper, but it's in the nation's capital city. And, uh, <laughs> and I knew it was from the, that paper and, and I needed to answer the phone. So I answered it. The reporter's name I knew. And he said, hi. I said, Dr. Moeller, I'm working on a story and uh, we're, we're going to break it about 10 o'clock this morning. And I need to ask you some questions. His first question was about homosexuality. His second question was about homosexuality. And his third question was, why is it this is all you talk about? And, and I'll admit I'd had it. You know, first of all, you called me at 6.15 and I, I said, excuse me, but you called me. I didn't call you. And you've asked me three questions. The first two are about homosexuality and the second one's why is this all I talk about? And to his credit, he said, ouch. <laughs> he said, you got me. And I said, if you call and ask me a question, I'm going to answer your question. This isn't even the most important thing I want to talk to you about. But it is, however, an issue of tremendous importance. And you ask me about it, I'm going to talk about it. That's pretty much where we are these days. In virtually any arena of this society, this issue is either being discussed or it actually should be discussed. How do we think about these things? Well, I want us to do a couple of things here tonight. And in, in the more relaxed setting of this kind of this kind of opportunity at a conference like this, I want us to, to kind of go backwards just a bit and consider how it is we are to put together a framework, first of all, for how we're to think about these things. All right? So let's work at that. I think the best place to work at that is Genesis. And the Christian worldview, we need to remember, is, is not distinctive just when it comes to the issues where the world has attached controversy. It's distinctive and counterintuitive in its entirety. And in our humility, one of the first things we need to recognize is that these truths that we are about to confront in this text are not truths that we have come to by our own ingenuity or intelligence. One of the first things Christians need to say on any of these controversial issues is we are no smarter than the world. We're not smarter than you are. We didn't come up with this, but by grace, the one true and living God has spoken. And since he's spoken, we know what we otherwise wouldn't know. So what do we know? Well, as the story begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You knew that. I'm sure you affirm that. But do you recognize what that establishes from the very beginning? As B.B. Warfield said very clearly in his little book, The Plan of Salvation, if God created the world, the entirety of the world is his responsibility. If God created the world, then the entirety of the world is the result of his plan. Things simply are not by accident. They are because he, in the dispensation of his providential and sovereign care over the universe, has made it so. Which means that when we look at a question like this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and say, what did God intend? A biblical worldview requires us to go back to the very beginning, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
But not only that, we come to Genesis chapter 2. And by the way, you hear liberal biblical scholars always saying, you know, you have two different creation stories in the Old Testament. They're at variance. You have one borrowed from here and one borrowed from there. Liberals love to go at this. It's a ridiculous assault upon the integrity of Scripture. What you have in Genesis 2 is a commentary on Genesis 1. It's a theological explanation that goes into greater detail about many of the things that are sequentially revealed in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, we come to the crucial passage where we are told that, as you see, the story is more complicated than we might imagine. In Genesis chapter 2, we are told that Adam had the responsibility to name all the creatures of the earth. Look here in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Notice what comes next. It isn't the creation of Eve. It comes, but it doesn't come next. What comes next is Adam's experience of naming all the animals. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Okay, a couple of things to note here. This is not a learning exercise for God. It's a learning exercise for Adam. The second thing we need to note is that Adam did not, first of all, note his need. The Creator did. God declared it isn't good for man to be alone. Adam doesn't know that yet. Adam's about to find that out, but he doesn't know it yet. The declaration that it isn't good for man to be alone is a declaration that was made by God who made Adam and loved Adam and knew Adam better than Adam knew himself. And then you have this, and, and so literary scholars look at this and say, well, what, is, what is this all about? You have, this must be a, a, an edited, a badly edited chapter. Because what you have is, is, is the declaration about Adam not being on, and then you have this segue or, or this diversion into naming the animals. It's not a diversion at all. It's a learning exercise for Adam. The Lord God has expressed the reality that it is not good for man to be alone, but Adam doesn't know that yet. How does Adam find that out? Well, first of all, you have the exercise of dominion that God has given to Adam. He is made in God's image. He alone is made in God's image, and he has the responsibility to name all the other critters. They don't name him. This is a massive ideological, uh, well catastrophe for many people when you recognize that the rejection of the biblical worldview leads you to absolute insanity. In the city of Berlin, not too long ago, they decided that they would try to make a point by making an exhibit in the zoo in which they put human beings, like we're just another animal. But it really became a farce as it had to, because the human beings had to put themselves in the exhibit. And the human beings had to make the signs saying homo sapiens to put on the exhibit. It wasn't as if the human beings were accosted by elephants who said, inside. (laughs) And then you had crudely painted signs outside, homo sapiens. No, it was ridiculous. God made one creature, one creature alone in His image. And what it means to be made in God's image is to rule We rule over the animals. We're given the responsibility you saw in Genesis chapter 1, and that is demonstrated here. Also being made in God's image means we have the capacity consciously to know Him. Other critters worship Him. 
They glorify him, but they don't consciously glorify him. The tiger, the giraffe, all these things are, are glorifying God in their own way, but they're not consciously doing so. But human beings are given the capacity made in God's image to do that. And, of course, this also comes with a moral capacity, a spiritual capacity. And Adam exercises this responsibility. God sends them all by him. And what does Adam learn through this experience? The Lord God had said in the, in the context of the heavenly throne, he said, it isn't good for man to be alone. But Adam names all the creatures. And what does he note? That for Adam, there was not found a helper to fit him or fit for him. It's a good thing for Adam to know, by the way. There are all kinds of good things to say about the animal kingdom, but none, none of them is fitting as a helpmeet for human beings. Adam had to learn that. And then we have so. After the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every verse to the field, for Adam there is not one found as a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God took from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. So here you have the creation of woman. And you'll notice several things simultaneously here. Number one, it's God's sovereign act. He does it of his own initiative. He's the one who declared it isn't good for man to be alone. Adam has now the recognition of his need, but he doesn't have any way to meet his need. There's nothing Adam can do to create the helper that is necessary for him, that is good for him. But God does this. He puts Adam into a sleep, and while he is asleep, he takes from his side and fashions Eve, and then he presents Eve. And you notice that he gets to name Eve too. This at last is bone of my bones. It complements me. It, it, it corresponds to me in flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then you look back to Genesis chapter 1, and in the sequential outline of creation, you look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have a wealth of information about how God's glory was to be demonstrated in creation, and in particular in His human creatures, and in particular in the complementarity between the man and the woman. We need each other. The man is not fulfilled without the creation of the woman. And yet they're not simply made for each other in this respect. They are put within a covenant context. Therefore, the end of verse two, of chapter 2 and verse 34, 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. So we are told that human beings need two things, as reflected in the fact that God, to his glory, created us gendered beings. Now, that, I know there's all kinds of controversy over the use of the word gender, but you just have to give it up because that is now how the word gender is used. It's not just about nouns. In terms of foreign language, it's a, it's a very technical term now that means how one is sexually represented as male or female, and as we shall see, it gets more complicated than that. But it's not more complicated than that in the Garden of Eden. 
One of the things Christians always need to do is to go back to God's creative intention as it's revealed in his inerrant and fallible scripture and see how it was to be from the beginning. And we will learn that Jesus himself teaches us to ask that very question. And what was it like in the garden? It was the man and the woman made for each other. The woman made as the helpmeet to the man. The man was not complete in terms of all of his capacities and functionalities until the woman was given unto him. But the woman was not merely given to the man as a companion, but rather as a complement. And furthermore, as a wife. The covenant of marriage is then essential. So in the Garden of Eden, in the perfection of paradise, in God's original creative intention, he created us male and female, both in his image, says chapter 1, both given dominion over the rest of the creation, says chapter 1, individuated, says chapter 2, and put in the context of marriage. Now Adam is all God meant him to be. By the time you come to the end of chapter 2, not only do we have the declarations of chapter 1 that the creation is good as the Creator Himself declares it's good, we have another very interesting and, and indeed unforgettable affirmation of the goodness of this. When you come to the end of chapter 2 and verse 25 and you read, "...and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." There is no shame in it. This morning we started in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 where Paul says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." One of the ways the Christian worldview gets us back to sane and sensible thinking about the things that God has revealed is that we discover once we understand God's truth, there's no shame in it. And there's no shame in it because God creates all things to His glory. And when we find out what His creative intention was, there is no shame in it at all. They were, well, my grandmother would have said, naked. <laughs> and they were not ashamed. Now, if this is where the biblical narrative ended, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There would be no confusion, right? In other words, we're now not living in Eden. We're living east of Eden. We're actually living a long way from Eden because immediately after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. And with Genesis 3 comes the catastrophe of the fall. And as Genesis 3 and the, the entire context of Scripture makes clear, what happens in the fall is not merely Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. It isn't merely the fact that the world itself turns hostile. Every single atom and molecule of the entire universe is now corrupted by our sinfulness such that now nothing is ex exactly as it should be. And again, we were in Romans chapter 1 where we were told that God revealed himself in the created order so that even his invisible attributes and his divine power are clearly seen so that there's no one who has an excuse. But the reality is that given our sinfulness, not only are our eyes now cloudy so that we do not see what is so obvious in front of us, but our sin has had catastrophic effects upon the creation such that the creation itself doesn't always tell us the truth in ways that are intelligible to us which is why we are so desperately dependent upon God's revelation in the Scriptures. Again, we're not smarter than everyone else. We just know that the Creator has actually given us His Word to clarify and to correct our thinking for human flourishing and for His glory. But on the other side of the fall, we have a couple of other expectations. 
And on the other side of the fall, for instance, we have the expectation that human beings will call evil good and good evil. We have the expectation that, as we saw this morning in Romans chapter 1, human beings will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We come up with elaborate theories to explain why what we're doing isn't sin, even though we know that it's sin. I mentioned this morning that principle, there are things we cannot not know because they are embedded in our hearts. They, they, are, they are part of what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God is to receive a moral knowledge that we cannot not know, but we can act as if we don't know it. And, and we can hire a therapist to tell us that it's not true. And, and we, can, we can create all these theories and, and rationalizations and entire worldviews and ideologies to confuse the issues. But in reality, if we're honest with ourselves, there are things we cannot not know. But that doesn't mean that people don't do what that knowledge they cannot not know tells them not to do. And on the other side of it, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness means they come up with elaborate ideologies to explain what they're doing. A couple of other issues we need to understand, that sexuality in the Bible is actually very easy to understand. It is one of the easiest concepts in the Bible to understand. So let's just talk about what the Bible reveals about these things because it is stunningly easy. God created us as sexual beings, gave us a sexual capacity, which is at one at the same time also a reproductive capacity in terms of the way it is rightly ordered. In other words, there is no division in the Scripture between the sexual and reproductive capacities. And that's a major principle. A lot of Christians don't even think about that. But that, that is a very key issue in terms of the biblical knowledge. It's, a, it, it's all tied together in one comprehensive package. By the way, here's a little footnote for you. If you are teaching moral theory or Christian ethics or, or you're a moral theologian, one of the things you have to deal with is the division of the transcendentals. I know this is, now this is where you're saying it is Sunday evening, you remember. <laughs> the division of the transcendentals comes down to the fact that, that uh, or the division of the goods, there are two different principles, uh, that, that we will try to divide things that the Scripture does not allow to be divided for instance, sex and reproduction. Not all kinds of issues that could flow from that, but the most important thing is, is that we're the people who know that at least God's creative intention was that those were rightly ordered, all things well understood, most often tied together. And when we try to untie them, we give all kinds of opportunity for moral mischief. And boy, are they untied today. I don't know if you saw the headlines in the last couple of weeks, but there's a headline from Europe about one sperm donor who, uh, who had a genetic disease. Turns out it's been passed on to many. I believe it was 68 children. Well, you know, in the beginning, it was not so. It wasn't. It wasn't how it was done. So anytime you deviate from God's creative plan, you bring in opportunities for catastrophe. Not only moral catastrophe, but the very real kinds of physical uh, catastrophes that happen in the wake of a moral catastrophe. And, and the division of the goods comes down to the fact that, that we have separated sex from, from reproduction. We've also separated reproduction from sex. So you've got lesbian couples who are buying sperm on the Internet. And you've obviously got men selling it. And you've got gay male couples who don't have to buy that, but they have to buy a womb or at least rent it. And you're saying, I didn't know we were going to talk about this in church. Well, this is where we better talk about it. 
Now, how are you going to understand that? Well, you need to understand that you cannot possibly grasp that from a Christian biblical worldview without Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. That wasn't how it was to be. This is evidence of what it means to be inventors of evil things. Now, you said, well, that's very judgmental. I don't have any option not to be judgmental tonight because Scripture makes the judgments. I will ask you to test everything I say by the Scriptures. And we have to think very carefully about how in the world we would articulate these things to a society that doesn't share our worldview and is at antipathy with so much of what we believe and therefore hears us as nothing more than speakers of hate. We're living in very strange times. But then again, you read the Bible and you understand those were strange times. I told you the Bible is, is understanding of sexuality is fairly easy to understand. It's, it's radically easy. Here it is. Sex inside of marriage is fine. Not only fine like God's allowing it, but amazingly enough, God is glorified in it without any embarrassment. We need to look at each other and say that's absolutely true. If we're hesitant to say that, the problem is that we are denying the goodness of God's creation. God did not see Adam and Eve when they joined together and found pleasure in it and said, I didn't intend that. No, He gave it to them to unify them in the one flesh relationship and to draw them together. But He didn't just draw them together for pleasure. He drew them together for covenant. He drew them together for family, for offspring, for progeny. After all, what were they told? They were told not only to exercise dominion, they were told to go forth and multiply. And this is how it's done. God just made it, He created incentives for multiplication. And we're unembarrassed to understand that. Within the context of marriage, I said it's stunningly easy. Here it is. Sex within the context of marriage is not only fine, it's God glorifying. It leads to human flourishing. It leads to the glory of God. It's not only fine, it's good. But in contrast, here's why it's easy to understand. Every other form of sexual expression is sin. It's really easy to understand. Every other form of sexual expression is sin. Now here again, we as Christians sometimes, especially conservative Christians, we tend to think unbiblically about sin. We sometimes think of sin as a catalog of things that we're not to do or we'll have our knuckles wrapped. The biblical understanding of sin is, first of all, that it's an assault upon the glory of God. And again, back to Romans chapter 1. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We exchange the glory of God for an image made in the form of corruptible things. We rob God of His glory. That's the very essence of sin. It isn't just that we do something that is wrong, deserving some kind of punishment. It is that we deliberately look the Creator in the face and say, I know why you created me. I know why you created this world. I know why you created this capacity. I know why you created this gift, but I will not have it the way you gave it to me. I will instead use it to my own means. That robs God of His glory, and that's the heart of the sinfulness of it. And that's why when we talk about the sinfulness of homosexual acts or virtually any sexual act outside of marriage, whether it's fornication or adultery or you go down the entire list, the sinfulness of it isn't just that it's on the list of the bad things, even though it is. It's because this is exactly what human beings do and the very essence of sinfulness is just rob God of His glory. Now, we don't just do that in the dimension of our lives that is sexual. We do that in every dimension of our lives, which is why every part of our lives is a mess without Christ. And, and why the world that gives itself over to sin is in a mess in every dimension of its life. But this is the dimension we're talking about. 
When we see Genesis chapter 1, we see Genesis chapter 2, we see Genesis chapter 3, and as I've said, if you're looking for those who lived in sexually troubled times, you do not have to look at postmodern America. You can look at pre-modern Israel. Let me just remind you, very, I had an Old Testament professor who had this exactly right. There is nothing condemned in Leviticus that someone wasn't doing. That's a very healthy reminder. Because if they hadn't been doing it, they wouldn't have known what it was. It's a very good insight of how to interpret the Scripture. There is nothing in the Bible someone wasn't doing to which God had to say, no. And again, it's very easy. In marriage, yes. Outside of marriage, no. The Old Testament is replete with examples of human sinfulness. Then you come to the New Testament. What in the world does Jesus do with this? This is where you hear a great deal of nonsense in terms of the secular conversation. And uh, I was many, many times on the Larry King show. And I've done many of these uh, conversations. And, you know, what they think is the absolute killer of the conversation is Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Is that true? Well, it's true only in the sense that Jesus never used the term and never directly addressed same-sex attraction in that sense. What he did address was what we should address, first of all, and that is what God's plan was from the beginning. But before we even turn to that, he does something else in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. First of all, we are told that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or dot will pass in the law until all that is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if Christians are tempted, and liberal Christians do this all the time, explicitly, and conservative Christians sometimes do dishonestly. If we are tempted to say, we're not under the law, so we don't have to worry about all of this, Jesus says... You've misunderstood who I am and everything I've taught. Because I did not come to abolish the law, but what to fulfill it. By the way, if Jesus merely abolished the law, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. He didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it. And thankfully, the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law means that we are no longer under the law, as Paul says. We are, we are not under the tortuous uh, weight of the law, which we could not fulfill. But that does not mean that, that those who are in Christ and are redeemed by His blood have no law. We instead follow the law of Christ. And is the law of Christ, when it comes to sexuality, greater or lesser? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's lesser when it comes to the volume of verses, but it is greater when it comes to our moral responsibility. For instance, look very carefully at the same chapter beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, we're in trouble now. Because it turns out that that what Jesus requires of his disciples is not less than what the Old Testament required of the Jews, but actually more. Because interestingly, in the Old Testament, there's really not much of a mention of anything we would call lust. 
The Old Testament law has to do with dis- discernible, definable acts primarily. Now, a little footnote here, a little footnote. This is pretty much where Islam is today. Um, you don't, and, and I've spent a lot of time in the Muslim world and talking to Muslims. Muslims have a hard time connecting to the language of the heart um, because it's all about obedience and, and either doing or avoiding certain acts. Their disposition to the heart really doesn't. They don't, think, they don't think Allah cares a great deal about the disposition of the heart. All he cares is about their actual obedience and behavior. Well, in the Old Testament, God did care about their heart, as he made very, very clear, but the law simply did not reach their hearts. But the law of Christ certainly does. It's not enough not to commit adultery. Now you can't even lust. So Jesus doesn't relax the laws concerning human sexuality. He increases them. And then to the specific issue of marriage, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus was in a conversation with the Pharisees. And the precise issue of the teaching was about divorce. Now when Jesus, verse 1, had finished these sayings, he went from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from what? From the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? Jesus points where? To the beginning. Jesus himself says, before I can answer this, we have to go back to God's, the Father's creative intention, which was perfect. And let's remember, the one who's speaking here is not merely the Son of the Father, but he is the divine Logos to whom the world was made. He's the very agent of creation. And now he is speaking, saying, you want to know where you start this conversation? You have to go back to the beginning. And what was the, the plan of God in the beginning? Very clearly. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus here comprehensively, emphatically affirms marriage as central to God's plan and purpose for humanity. And he affirms this particular argument as the conclusion of the matter. In other words, nothing more needs to be said. Once you understand that God's intention from the beginning was that a man and a woman shall be united to each other and only to each other, throughout all of their lives until death parts them, then you understand everything else is derivative of that. So the Pharisees came asking technical questions about divorce, and Jesus throws it back at them and says, God the Father did not intend for divorce. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that he allowed Moses to allow divorce under certain circumstances, but I'm not even going to talk about that because you're avoiding asking the question of what it was meant to be from the beginning, which clarifies everything instantly. Well, then you also have, and again, because we, I preached on this text this morning in Romans chapter 1, you have a comprehensive layout of the sinfulness of the particular deviation known as same-sex attraction. And what's really interesting is that Romans chapter 1, it begins with female homosexuality, which is virtually never mentioned in the ancient world. It, it was existent, it just, it just didn't mention it because the Greco-Roman worldview didn't think that the sexual behavior of women mattered. And so it, was, it, it wasn't a threat to society, so they didn't mention it. But they did mention, of course, male homosexuality. And, of course, the, the Greeks even celebrated it and institutionalized it through pederasty and, uh, and pedophilia. But what you have is Paul 
comprehensively, again, going back to the beginning, to creation. He uses that word exchange three times. He uses the word of judgment three times. God gave them over. And what do they exchange? The natural use for that which is unnatural. What's Paul saying? Go back to the beginning. That's where, that's where human flourishing is found. That's where happiness is found. That's where health is found. That's where righteousness is found. And he uses homosexuality, as we saw this morning in Romans chapter 1, not as a way of saying, look at those sinners, those vile homosexuals. He does it because he's speaking of humanity, vile humanity, sinful humanity. He's using that particular sin as a way to get our attention, first of all, to make very clear the sinfulness of that sin. We need to know that desperately in an age today in which people are saying the Bible is either you know, confused about this or the Bible's been misinterpreted about this. That is absolute nonsense. Paul not only declares homosexuality to be sinful, he explains why. He calls it idolatry. Now, you do that on Larry King. Well, you can't do it now. He's not have a program. But if you do that on CNN, and you'll find yourself in a great deal of controversy, but read Romans 1. Paul says that human sinfulness in every form is idolatry. And that being one that is graphically apparent to us. But then again, just in case we, we think it, it, that, that Romans chapter 1 is about those people, it's about all of us, because by the time you end Romans chapter 1, he has shown that idolatry in all of its forms, from everything down to backbiting and gossiping to being disobedient to parents. We're all, we're all there. The Christian church is confronted with all kinds of challenges. And many of the challenges come down to the fact that we are being told either that we do not know the truth or that we simply have no right to speak. But we have no option in this. We have different responsibilities, though, don't we? We have the first responsibility inside the church. Let's talk about that. What is our responsibility inside the church? It is to preach the whole counsel of God. And so I'm going to tell you right now that if indeed from your pulpit these issues are not addressed, you are failing your people, and you are failing your calling, because they are living, <laughs> they're living testimonies to the fact that we desperately need a word from God about these things. And we need it regularly. This is one of the things you find in the Old Testament prophets. They repeated themselves. Why? Because there were issues that faced them that were just irrefutably crying out, we're going to have to go over this again. We're going to have to go over this again. And in an age of confusion, you've got to go over it again and again and again. You're going to get tired of talking about this. You're going to be tired of being criticized for talking about this. You're going to have a reporter call you, ask you question one, question two, and question three. Why is this all you talk about? Well, actually, it's not all you're preaching about. It's not all you're teaching about. But it is inescapable in terms of our responsibilities. So how do we teach the church about these things? Well, we teach the church always from Scripture. We are not sex experts. We, we are not sexologists. We're not merely moralists in terms of having a concern about morals. We are, we're not merely ethicists. We are preachers of the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks about these things directly, and so with equal directness, so much must we. But one of the things we need to do about the church as well is teach them how to put this into the context of the gospel. It's not just that God has declared certain things to be righteous and certain things to be unrighteous. It's that He has revealed all of this in the context of the biblical narrative of creation and fall and redemption and then consummation. In other words, Christians should be those who understand that we should fully expect a sinful world to act in sinful ways. And we're, we're able to give first-person 
testimony about that because we were of that same world. We, as Paul says, thought exactly the same way. We were living according to the same impulses, but God, by His grace and to His glory, redeemed us by Christ. Snatched us out of the world, as the New Testament says. Transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous light. And therefore, we are a different people. We're new creatures in Christ. And as new creatures in Christ, we know things we did not know before. Not because we're smarter, but because these things are being revealed to us. They have been revealed to us. And furthermore, we understand that it is incumbent upon every Christian to affirm these things, not only as simply being true, as if we have to say, this is where you hear Christians say, well, I regret to tell you that that's sin. We shouldn't regret to tell them it's sin. Shouldn't mean you regret in it. It's God's grace to tell a sinner his sin. It was certainly God's grace that we found out about the sinfulness of our sin. Otherwise, we wouldn't have known our need for a Savior. But we we have to help Christians to put this in the larger context, and so they can understand what it means to go back to the beginning, as Jesus himself teaches us. Go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning tells us how things were intended to be from the beginning, because in paradise, in creation, in God's initial act, we find where God's glory and human flourishing are to be found. By the way, that's another very important moral principle, and one you need to keep in mind. Human flourishing and God's glory are the same thing. You thought about that? Where you find God's glory most purely reflected, you will find the greatest degree of human happiness. Where's going to be the happiest place on earth? Well, those gathered before the throne of God. And that would be, by the way, the new heavens and the new earth. Where do you find people who should be at their happiest? Well, they're the ones who understand the greatest degree of human flourishing, that we were made for this purpose, and only the redeemed can know this. And unfortunately, there are many amongst the redeemed who've never been shown this in Scripture so that they understand this. We've got to speak precisely. We've got to speak technically at times. We have to speak appropriately. One of the things the church needs to do is at times do even what we've just done here. You notice there are no children in this room. There's, there's a reason for that. It's not because we're going to talk about anything that's, uh, that's too technical or scandalous. Uh, for children to know. It's just that there is a progressive way in which children need to understand these things. And there are certain things we need to have an adult conversation about. There are times when the church needs to gather the men together for a conversation with the men and women together for a conversation with the women. There are things that ought to be said quite directly to men and quite directly to women that ought to be said without the company of the other. But the congregation as a whole needs the undiluted teaching and preaching of the Word of God. The kind of boldness that comes in setting forth the full conviction and setting forth everything that's revealed in Scripture in terms of the gospel. What does the sexual confusion of the age tell us? It tells us of our need for the gospel. It's Romans 1. What does all of this controversy tell us? It tells us about our need for the gospel. What does it tell us? It tells us that human beings will not only sin, but will create elaborate ideologies, elaborate worldviews, justifications and rationalizations for this. And furthermore, by the time you get to Romans chapter 1, you come to the conclusion, what does it say? These not only do these things, but give hearty approval to them who do it. You see, that's where we're living right now. The issue about same-sex marriage is partly about same-sex couples wanting the same rights and privileges, the over 1,200 statutes and, and uh, benefits that come by means of, of law. But that's not all there is, because you could do that without calling it marriage. 
They demand marriage because they want, and they'll say this quite openly, the legitimation, the normalization, the endorsement of their sin. It's the one thing we can't give. The church has to understand why. The church has to understand and be taught to understand the limitations of certain words that don't actually work very well in a serious moral conversation, such as the word fair. This is something I rail against as a theologian. It's one of the worst words imaginable theologically, fair. Because number one, try to define what it means for God to be fair. It isn't fair that God chose Israel from all the nations. That wasn't fair. It isn't fair that, that God revealed himself specifically to a specific people in a specific time and not equally to all the peoples of the earth, it, not by human definitions of fairness. It isn't fair that I should hear the gospel and someone else not hear the gospel. It isn't fair that I should hear the gospel and respond to it and someone else not respond to it. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not fair that we have the privilege of being here tonight and others uh, that in some parts of the world don't have this. Fairness doesn't work. Fairness works if you have two little kids in a sandbox. It doesn't work in terms of the big moral questions. It doesn't work in terms of issues of, uh, of morality and public policy. Fairness just really doesn't work because fairness, first of all, is in the eye of the beholder, and fairness also assumes that out there somewhere is a standard called fair that we're supposed to aspire to. Well, there isn't. There's a standard called righteous. There's a standard called true. There's a standard called just. And that standard is none other than God himself. Oh, and he is fair. But when the Bible talks about God being fair, it means as in fairest Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the nicest kid in the sandbox. It means in the older use of the English word fair, he is beautiful and perfect, fairer than fair. When we talk within the church, we've got to talk boldly about these things, but we also need to talk humbly about these things. We're not even talking about how to talk to the world yet. We're just talking about how to talk to ourselves. And, and here is the biggest problem. Before I get to our biggest problem, let me tell you the biggest problem on the other side. All around us are denominations and churches caving on this question, just caving right and left. But you'll notice they didn't wait to cave on this. They've been caving on everything else before they caved on this. They caved on the authority of Scripture and the truthfulness of Scripture. They caved on the essence of the gospel. They've, they've, been, they've been accommodating biblical truth, and they've been trimming their theological sails for the better part of a hundred years. So when it gets to this, they had no defenses not to cave to this. All right? So theological accommodationism is the temptation of the theological left. And what's the temptation of the theological right? Well, we're not going to deny the Scripture. We're not going to deny its authority. We're not going to deny its truthfulness. We're not going to deny what it says about sin. So what are we going to do? Well, here's our problem. A lack of humility. Well, then you say, well, if, lack, if we need more humility, then we just won't talk about this. No, that's not biblical humility. Biblical humility is not failing at the calling. It's understanding that we do not do so from a position of superiority. Is that making sense? We're not smarter than the world. And here's, here's another thing. We're actually not morally superior to the world. Now, that doesn't mean we're not to live to a higher law. That, that's true. And as a matter of fact, there is to be evidence that we are so to live before the world that they will see our good works and praise their Father who is in heaven. But do we really think that we deserve that credit? That's Christ working within his people. 
What we, what we, the New Testament formula is to make your calling and election sure. In other words, we look for the evidence that Christ is working within his people. If we're his people, Christ is going to be working within us. The Holy Spirit is going to be, by the word, conforming us to Christ's image, and that is going to be apparent. But we are in no position to say to the world, we are morally superior to you. We will be heard as saying, we needed the gospel less than you need it. And that's deadly. We do not need the gospel less than they need it. We need it as infinitely as they need it. And then there's another problem. And this is a problem that we have to recognize has a pedigree. It, it, it didn't emerge out of nothing. We have been teaching the truth and we have been proclaiming the Scripture and we have had to name things as Scripture names them, okay? And if we were living in the Old Testament, we could probably feel pretty good about ourselves. It's kind of like the rich young ruler. I haven't done any of those things, right? That's what he said. From my childhood, I have kept the law. And then Jesus proved that he had not kept the law, because he, was, he loved his things more than he loved obedience to Christ, which means he had coveted. He was breaking the law right there. What's my point? My point is, this is another reason why we don't need children in the room, because they'll misunderstand this, but at some point they're going to need to know this. There isn't a human being on the far side of puberty who isn't a sexual sinner. There isn't. Now, thanks be to God, I look across this room, my guess is that most of the people in this room have never committed X, Y, Z, A, B, and C on the list of sins. And for that, I'm very thankful. Although we do know in any group of Christians, there are going to be folks who both before their conversion had experienced these things, and there are going to be some who even after their conversion have struggled with these things. And we do know that those things are sin. And they require the gospel, and they require the discipline and the attention and the teaching of the church, and they require the urgent attention of Christians. But it's not just enough. This is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said it isn't enough not to commit adultery. If you lust in your heart, you've already sinned. In other words, we could put out in front of this church, redeemed perverts are us. And we need to do that with a sense of sober understanding that it is true. It is true. And I, I, I think there are probably some of you gathered here tonight who actually don't believe it's true. And if you don't believe it's true, you don't understand your sin. And you don't understand your need of the gospel and our need of Christ together. Because the reality is that in the Garden of Eden, there would have been no sexual thought that wasn't entirely to the glory of God. There would have been no sexual… well, that's the reason they were naked and not ashamed. There was no opportunity for lust. There was no opportunity for confusion. And, and there are different male patterns of sin and female patterns of sin, and sometimes the female pattern of sin is less about lust than about resentment or other things or, or covetousness. Well, the reality is that there isn't a male who doesn't know what lust is and doesn't know that he is a luster by nature. 
And there is not one of us here who is not, one way or another, a pervert in terms of perverting what was God's plan from the beginning. The very fact that we are wearing clothes as Adam and Eve fashioned leaves for themselves is quite enough evidence of the fact we need them. It's a reminder of our sin. I know you don't realize that and you don't want to go home and tell your three-year-old wearing clothes is a reminder of our sinfulness. <laughs> uh, but it is. It is. And that's just talking to the church. And, and, and what does this mean? This means that this is something very important. When someone is struggling with same-sex sexual attraction, the Bible says that's a tragedy. But you know what? So is the kid that's dealing with internet pornography. Or the woman who resents her husband in ways that are unbiblical. Or the wandering eyes of someone who covets a spouse that belongs to someone else, or at least even fantasizes about the thoughts, what my life would be if I were married to X or to Z, or, or sexual frustration among those who, who uh, uh, are either unmarried or not yet married or previously married or widowed. Or You look at this, the opportunities for human sinfulness are just massive. And this means that when someone's struggling with something like same-sex attraction, we're the people who ought to be the safest people in the world to talk about that. Because it's not as if they're the only people struggling sexually in the congregation. We're just talking about the church now. And I guarantee you, any church of any size has got people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And that's something you need to speak to. But you speak to it in the sense that, again, what's this point out? Our need for the gospel. And we're gospel people, so we are up to this. We can have this conversation. This ought to be the safest place in the world for you to share your struggles, and you're not sharing it with someone that doesn't know struggles. You're not the only person who's sexually messed up here. We are the company of those who are sexually messed up, but for the grace of God and the gospel, we would be as messed up as the world. But by God's grace, there's a way out of the mess. And there's a way out for you too. And when I say there's a way out, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy. But uh, I'm in a continuing controversy. As a matter of fact, I was invited to speak uh, to the largest association of psychiatrists in America on this, and then I got very publicly disinvited after I'd already flown to Washington, D.C. to speak to them. Because they could not even allow someone to speak on their platform who believed that homosexuality was a sin. But you know, that wasn't even the worst thing. When I believed that homosexuals could change, that was why the homosexual group protested, and, and they, knocked, they literally knocked me off the platform. I sat in the hotel, ready to walk in the room to be introduced, and they knocked me off the platform. You see, we're the people who know that sinners can change. We're also the people who know it's not easy, right? And we also know there are patterns of sin that are harder than others to deal with. That's why we need the body of Christ. That's why we need the means of grace of the preaching of the words and the fellowship, the work preaching of the word and the fellowship of the saints. That's why we need the body of Christ together. And so we say to someone as a sexual, in terms of your sexual temptation, let me just tell you some bad news, buddy. You can't handle this. But we can. Oh, by the way, we can't on our own, but we can because we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will. Now that's how we talk to each other, how we talk to the world. Well, put on the whole armor of God because you're going to need it. And you know what? We shouldn't be depressed about that. We grieve it. We grieve the delusions and the, and the depravity around us. We, we grieve the confusion around us. 
But this is a wonderful time to be a Christian truth teller because it is to God's glory to speak the truth to a world that's never even heard it before. And here's it is radically different than what it knows. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is so radically different. If the gospel makes sense to sinners, then it's not the gospel. Right? That's why we believe that it's all of grace, that the sinner himself has to have his eyes open to understand. The sinner doesn't even want to know he's a sinner. It's God's grace that we come to know our sin. But that's what the gospel is all about. That's why we preach and teach the word everywhere. We teach the preach and teach and share the gospel with everyone because we're absolutely convinced that if they will believe, they will be saved. And if they are saved, they become Christ. And if they're united with Christ, they are able to deal with anything, not alone, but in the communion of the saints, in the fellowship of the church. Now, how do you speak to the world about this? That's tough. You do need the full armor of God. But you've got to speak these things. Speaking the truth in love has never been more difficult and simultaneously more necessary We've got to speak the truth in ways that are clear. In other words, we have to speak things by their name. We have to be very clear that the Bible does reveal this. And, and we're, we're trying to do it because we believe that human flourishing depends upon it. Not just the glory of God, which is our ultimate concern, but human flourishing. In other words, one of the things that I have to continually say in the public to those who are the advocates of homosexuality, I don't want less for you. I want more for you. I don't want less than you want for yourself. I want more than you want for yourself. And I know that doesn't even make sense to you, but I've got to do it anyway because that's my job. I've got to love you enough to tell you that what you're doing is destroying you. And not only that, by the time you get to the letter, first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, what do you have? Those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to tell the truth. Otherwise, we're just not, we're just not preaching the word. We're not contending for the faith. We're not actually telling the truth. We're lying there are all kinds of issues when it comes to public policy the church is going to have to think through, and sometimes the church is going to have to think through it knowing that we don't control the public policy. Right now, if you're a Christian in Iowa, you're not going to decide whether or not same-sex marriage should be legal. You're going to have same-sex marriage licenses handed out and the state calling people married. You know, we're going to discover what it means to be a conscientious objector to the moral reality around us. We may end up paying a severe price for this. There may be, indeed, given the way that the, the logic of hate speech and hate crimes are going, we may be sharing a jail cell together one day, but we've got to do it anyway because the church has no, no question but for the responsibility to teach and preach the Word of God. We have to understand that there are several horrible arguments out there in the public square that we have to confront. One is the assertion that you can't legislate morality. When in reality... Almost everything that's legislated is legislated as a moral issue. This, the speed zone is a moral issue. The moral issue being the worth of human beings and the danger of accidents. I mean, just about every part of the law is saturated in morality. And by the way, even the people who say, you know, I had to deal with this in an argument Saturday, even as I was uh, already here in, in Nebraska with uh, a major columnist in a newspaper I got called about who was, uh, who was saying that uh, you know, whatever consenting adults, in fact, I wrote about this, whatever consenting adults decide to do in the privacy of their own sexual lives is their own business. We see the problem is people who make that argument don't actually even believe it. 
I guarantee you the person making that argument still has at least some reservations about what some behaviors might be, even among the consenting adults. In other words, the world, is, the world doesn't even actually believe its own lies. One of those lies being you can't legislate morality. Now, it does get to the point, to what point can we insist upon marriage as one thing rather than another? Well, I think on marriage we have to understand that if we fail to contend for marriage as it was in the beginning, we sow the seeds of horrible human pain and injury. And we're just not, we're just not faithful if we do that or if we simply passively allow that. We can't necessarily keep it from happening, but at least we can tell the truth about what it is and contend for it as best we can. We, at the same time, have to avoid the false gospel of moralism. The false gospel of moralism says that what God mainly wants of us is that we behave. The problem with that, of course, is that God does order us to behave, but that's not His main hope for us because He's already seen... Let's put it this way. On the other side of Genesis 3, God tells us to behave in order that we do not harm ourselves, but we can't behave well enough to save ourselves. Moralism is a false gospel that says what God wants us to do is behave, and, and by the way, that's why that false gospel is preached routinely in Sunday school. Because when we're talking to six-year-olds, we do want them to behave. For that matter, you're talking to 60-year-olds, you want them to behave. But you don't want them to trust in their behaving. And that's the whole gospel. But to avoid moralism is to avoid believing that we actually save people by making them more moral. We don't. But it is not moralism to try to have, to seek to have a system of laws that will protect human beings from themselves insofar as that is possible. Which is why we have laws against lying, laws against adultery. That doesn't mean we can keep people from committing adultery, but it does mean it has legal consequences. That doesn't mean we don't have, uh, you know, laws against this or that, because unfortunately, human beings have shown the need for those laws. And defending marriage is not mere, more, it could be mere moralism, if that's we believe when our job's done, or if we believe that will lead people into the kingdom. It won't. At the end of the day, the most important thing the church has to do is preach the gospel. And finally, the same-sex marriage issue is urgently a religious liberty issue, simply because what the state declares to be marriage has legal consequences which churches and Christian institutions and Christian schools are going to face to catastrophic result. I mean, for instance, just to give an example, if you're a Christian, if you've been running a Christian children's home or a Christian orphanage or a Christian adoption society, you can't do that in the state of Massachusetts now unless you're going to give children to same-sex couples. If you can't do that, you can't have the, the ministry. That's a religious liberty issue. That is a huge religious liberty issue. And because the church doesn't only preach the gospel, which is its first responsibility, it has to act on behalf of the gospel. And that is a religious liberty issue that is not only looming on the horizon, but it is a catastrophe in the very present, especially in jurisdictions where same-sex marriage is already legal. Or, if, for instance, if you have a Christian school and you're hiring, um, and again, you know, people say, well, the exemptions are written in. Well, the exemptions are for those who have teaching or, or quote, sacerdotal responsibility, not for those who are uh, admissions people and 
all the other kinds of people you have to have to run. I mean, for instance, in England right now, they've limited it to where you can say that your senior minister cannot be a homosexual, but you cannot say that your youth minister cannot be a homosexual. And churches are legally prevented from firing someone for homosexual behavior unless they are the senior minister. Well, we got a problem. This is going to require more wisdom than we've got. It's going to require more conviction than we've shown. It's going to require more knowledge than most Christians know. And that just demonstrates what a big job we've got. But at the end of the day, as Jesus said, we have to go back to the beginning. And that means if we are not defending marriage, we're not defending the glory of God and God's purpose for human flourishing. That means we're failing at our job. It's going to be with fear and trembling, and we're going to need to talk about this and with each other to figure out how rightly to do this, but there's no question this is what we've got to do. It's a good thing that we gathered together tonight to talk about this, and there will be more about this to say, because inventors of evil things means that what we're looking at is the fact that that the entire sexual culture around us is being thrown into such confusion, you can't take anything for granted. There was a university just in the last week that got into trouble for having an insufficient number of non-gender assigned bathrooms. I talked the other day to a parent who told me that his third grader had gone to school and the teacher who had been a female when the school year began is now a male. Those are eight-year-olds. We're living in a day in which being an inventor of evil thing This is a whole new reality, and we're seeing it right before our eyes, and we're seeing it on daytime and nighttime television, and we're seeing it in headline news. And folks, if they're not hearing about this from the pulpit, we're not doing our job. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your wisdom, and we are now accountable to that wisdom. Father, we pray that your wisdom will reign in us in order that your glory will be shown in us. Father, may all of these things make us love you more and cling to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with ever greater thankfulness. Father, may we not fail to teach and preach all that you've revealed, for it is not only for your glory but for our good. Father, I pray that you'll give us courage for the living of these days. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Dr. Albert Muller president of Southern Seminary. He was recently in Nebraska at the Bold Church Conference at the Highland Park Church in Columbus, Nebraska. Some of our students were able to attend and and hear a part of the conference and some of the uh, talks that Dr. Muller gave at that conference, at that conference, at that conference, at that conference.